The Times, a daily news podcast from the Los Angeles Times, gives you the world through the eyes of the West Coast. Through interviews and original stories, The Times is a podcast you need to understand the world and how California shapes it. Because if an issue that's in California isn't in your town yet, it will be soon. New episodes of The Times are available every weekday. To find it, go wherever you get your podcasts and search for The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Gracias. Isn't it time to awaken a journey filled with wonder on a celebrity cruise? Drinks, Wi-Fi, and tips are always included. Plus, book by December 13th to get 50% off your second guest's cruise fare. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Celebrity Cruises. Journey safe. Journey wonderful. Offer applies to select sailings. Additional restrictions apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. I'm Todd Furness, your host. And as always, we encourage you to like, uh, share, and subscribe. We welcome your support. We need your support. And uh, this is not uh, funded by anybody other than me and, uh, and, and the, kind, uh, the kindness of our guests who uh, contribute their time. I am just absolutely delighted today to have our guest on board. Uh, we have Laura Murray, who is going to join us. And Laura has an incredible background. Uh, just the academic credentials uh, alone are impressive. But uh, you're with what I would regard as one of the most prominent hospital systems in the world, uh, Johns Hopkins. And uh, so, w- Laura, welcome. Glad to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Todd. So you're in the thick of things right now. You are uh, kind of ground zero in terms of some of the biggest challenges our nation is facing uh, broadly, but you're dealing within your community and your uh, your patient list. But kind of let's let's walk through a little bit around the, the broadest issues that have been really brought to the fore by virtue of COVID. Uh, we've got issues. You're, you're focused on uh, psychological issues and emotional issues. Um, what are you seeing with your patients right now? And then how do you react to the to the to the broader things going on in our in our nation? Great and timely question, Todd, of course. Uh, I think as we all know, COVID has really brought along a lot of awareness and acknowledgement about some of the mental and behavioral health challenges we all go through. And I think the the pandemic has highlighted and perhaps exacerbated some of those. I also think one of the things we're talking about in relation to mental health, Todd, is something we call collective traumas, where there's just a lot going on in our society. There's a lot globally. Um, we've had some, some race issues. We've, uh, of course, on top of the pandemic, we've had a lot of international issues that have also raised a lot of uh, different feelings and emotions about trust. We've got the vaccines coming out. And so 
mentally, emotionally, psychologically, we're just seeing a lot of ups and downs, a lot of people moving around different levels of anxiety and stress and depression, depending on, are we shut down? Are we able to do this? Are we not? A lot of frustration and indecision and questioning of life. You know, can I still work for this company if they require me to be vaccinated or go in the office or not? Uh, and just a lot of stress around medical issues and, and healthcare systems too, of how do we manage all the need for nurses? How do we keep building rooms for COVID patients? Are we still addressing other health issues that come in in a timely fashion? When are those shut down? When are they not? So lots of decisions, lots of stress, lots of um, tension. And I think I'm hoping that we're all increasing our awareness so that we can start working on solutions to these. So you mentioned a few things there that are interesting to me. One is the idea of collective uh, trauma and collective pressures, uh, which I hadn't really thought about as a unique idea, but it makes sense to me. I, I think that if you if you look at that one way, you could say well, we have all these exogenous events, right? These are things that are happening outside of us, which we really have little or no control over, and they create stress. You know, and they're they can be political, they can be economic, they can be family oriented, whatever. Um, it seems to me that there's a corollary to that with regard to institutional distrust. Um, the mixed messages we're getting, or, or I shouldn't say mixed messages, the things that come across as confusing uh, messages seemingly in conflict from time to time uh, has been a problem. And is if is your observation that people are also experiencing this kind of institutional distrust where the institutions that they've relied on historically, they don't know that they can rely on a, on a going forward basis or they're, or they're, they're calling them into question more now? Absolutely. I think that's pretty apparent uh, in a lot of different ways and across a lot of different issues. How it relates to collective trauma psychologically is that usually when there's a collective trauma, you really start to question things, perhaps look at life differently. If you think about big things like World War II or the 9-11 tragedy, things like that. What's interesting to me about COVID and this particular pandemic, Todd, is that usually in collective traumas as human beings, we come together, right? Right. For some reason, a collective trauma that's experienced by society, historically, we come together. There's, there's, a, there's questioning, there's challenges, there's stress, but there's also a joining, almost like in order to get through this, perhaps we need each other or different, different angles like that. What's interesting about this pandemic is it's almost on the opposite where it has separated people. It's taken people away from being able to see people and relate to people. Uh, the vaccine is creating a whole nother level of rift. Um, how hospitals are handling our healthcare is a whole other, other rift. So I think you're touching on a lot of different challenges and experiences we're seeing with, with this pandemic and what it's creating for that potential distrust in any number of organizations. Which actually raises a couple of interesting questions. Well, a bunch of interesting questions, but I'll start with a couple. One, um, I have I have two uh, pithy statements that I like to use. Uh, one, one is that rules are the enemy of judgment. 
But that begs the question, what is judgment? And my operating definition is that judgment is the application of your values to the fact pattern before you to make a decision. So where do you get your values? Um, for my family and, and hopefully for my children, you know, we get them from, from scripture and from the dining room table and from uh, other sources and uh, you know, politically, obviously, from, from a variety of places. Uh, and then we learn how to apply those values through what I call an apprenticeship model meaning we watch our, our parents uh, apply them and others whom we respect, we, we, we see them apply them hopefully well. Uh, and then we see people apply, whom we don't respect and for whom we, we develop a sense of disrespect because they apply values their values um, uh, in a way that's not good. Um, so that's my, arch- that's my architecture for the discussion. What seems to me and what you're kind of alluding to is that COVID has kind of drawn us apart and really maybe exposed a variety of things. One is the fact that maybe we don't have the same set of shared values we did, so we can't come together uh, as easily as we might, might have in the past. I mean, you, you kind of alluded to things that happened after 9-11, for example, but I would go back to like World War II, and, and I'm not that old, but I'm pretty old, but uh, not that old, uh, but World War II, the Korean conflict, and you know, really where we started coming apart after Vietnam was really, really a, a challenge for the nation. So if you have a problem with shared values, then you also have problems with the institutions that you respect or that you rely on, whether it's government or, uh, or healthcare or others. So let me just kind of hit the pause button there. Does, does that architecture work for you as a, as a way of thinking about it? Because I want to then go on and talk about what you see as working and not working. Yeah, that's a very interesting architecture, Todd. Uh, I could definitely see it working. I think that it is. That's my next book, I, in case you're wondering. <laughs> I'm going to go read that. I, you know, one of the things that collective traumas do for us is, as human beings, is tends to turn us inwards and creating more awareness around what are our values right? What do we consider? Do we need to reprioritize? And I see a lot of that going on, even in high-level leadership and um, journal articles at Harvard Business, people sort of saying, what are our priorities? And and maybe work isn't all of it, uh, which is very interesting to see. I think when you talk about distrust in institutions, that leads me to think psychologically, do we have a value for differences, for engaging in conversations rather than I have my value. And if you don't think the same way I do, then I dislike you. Uh, And there's people with more rigid psychological patterns and there's people with less rigid psychological problems or psychological. I got to stop you right there. Just thank you for unintentionally promoting civil discourse, the name of our podcast. (laughs) I knew you were going to weave it in there some way. I'm glad you did. It was perfect. But that's really why we started the podcast is to say, you can't just say it's my way or the highway. That doesn't work for a democratic society. And I just underscore your point. You know, we jobs reports came out this weekend and talked about over 4 million people just evaporating from the workforce and how participation in the labor is, labor forces is at an all-time low so, or at a substantial low. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I thought those were really important points to underscore there. Yeah. So we are rethinking things. 
Yeah, we are. People are leaving the workforce. People are changing. People are just rethinking things. And I think, again, from a psychological standpoint, anytime you introduce change to a human's life, that is a high stressor in and of itself. And so if you look at the whole picture of what human beings are, are dealing with right now, globally, domestically, within families. There's a lot of people that would say our family structures have changed so much over time that people are going back to what is the family structure? Are there morals and values being transferred around those dinner tables anymore that historically they used to be? There's a lot of questioning of things. And then there's a lot of- Do we have family dinners? How about that one? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I was growing up, we lived in a fairly structured family, fair to say. I, my Both my parents were lawyers. All of the males on my mother's side of the family were uh, naval officers so, and oh. lawyers. Yeah, so it, it, we had command performance uh, every Sunday at my great-grandparents' <laughs> house. Uh, from the time I was five, unsurprisingly, uh, I uh, we were required as the boys in the family to, uh, to all wear khaki pants, a button-down shirt, a tie, a blue blazer, and uh, loafers. This this is a Sunday dinner, three o'clock on Sunday afternoon, growing up in Virginia, and wow. the, the, all of the young ladies wore uh, dresses and shoes that we, but the most people don't even remember, called Mary Janes, which are patent leather shoes. And and uh, so anyway, it's just funny, but um, you know the family the family dinner concept is is seemingly kind of uh, been under siege too. So which makes it harder for us to translate those values or communicate those values or reinforce those values and have those important conversations. Uh, and so I think that's been a, a Another challenge to what we're doing now. So, when you're walking through this, you're pointing out the challenges, and we we talked about shared values. That's under siege. The ability to learn what those values might be in order in order to share them. The ability to see how people are applying because we're not talking about what we're doing in our daily life at the family dinner dining room table or any other table. and then that we, we have the issues that correspond to that with regard to institutions and dealing with mental health and uh, emotional health, psychological health that are born out of our current circumstance. We've been under under this rubric for a year and a half now. It's soon to be two years. Um, we have kids that are still wearing masks at school. If they're going to school, we still have remote learning. We have lots of people who are not in the office yet. Uh, a friend of mine that works in a 50-plus story building on Park Avenue in New York City. He said nobody's been in the building since uh, March of last year. Uh, our, our cultural fabric is under siege. Um, but I think one of the things that you and I have spoke, spoken about briefly is this idea of how our mental health system is broken and how COVID has really highlighted that. How, how COVID has highlighted how broken our mental health system is. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Brent Christopher on, who is uh, with Children's Medical in Dallas. Um, he's a president there, and he kind of alerted us to some of the ch- some of the things he was seeing in terms of a spike, especially with pediatric mental health. What are you seeing there? And, and talk about some of the things you're trying to do that are innovations to the model that might help us sidestep just absolutely going off the cliff? 
This is an area that I'm so passionate about. What's interesting, Todd, is that so I have spent the last 20 years focusing a lot of my work on low and middle income countries all over the globe. And so start, starting in middle school, then. Uh, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Thank you for the compliment. Um, I did a lot of work in New York City after 9 11. So I was there in the aftermath of that. And then I moved into a lot of work in low and middle income countries. And Part of the beauty of that for me was that it was a space that was open, unfortunately, because they have no mental health system, they don't have licensing, they don't have the same types of systems that we have here for better or for worse, but it allowed for a lot more innovation space. And in COVID, as you said, what we are seeing is is an increase across the board much more acknowledgement, even on professional sports, we're seeing people come out regularly about how important this is. So you see a cultural shift to acceptance of this. And yet what I think it's done is really highlighted. Where do I get help? How do I get help? What's good help? Who do I turn to? And being back in the States a little bit more over the past year and a half, not being able to travel as much as I used to, I was able to be reimmersed a little bit in what are the challenges. The mental and behavioral health tech company space is booming. And there are more and more companies people are seeing out there, Calm, Headspace, Lyra, Modern Health, lots of ones popping up, uh, lots of AI and digital programs out there. And our current systems that are in place, all of these, from what we can see, are functioning on what we talk about as a siloed care process. It's our healthcare system, right? So Todd, if you came into me and said, Hey, I'm dealing with some depression, some anxiety, and really I'm drinking a lot. Like I I'm pretty sure I have a substance use problem. That's a normal presentation. No one comes in with just one thing. There's, there's, there's multiple challenges in our healthcare system. What that would mean is you have to go find someone who knows how to treat depression. And then usually someone separate that treats anxiety and then someone separate that treats substance use. It's a very long journey. It means you're transferring and finding multiple providers. If you're not going down this journey, what's happening is you're going to a generalist. And unfortunately, 80 to 90% of our licensed providers actually don't even have the opportunity to learn what we call science-backed treatments, the treatments that have actually been shown in studies to reduce symptoms. They don't get training in this. So most people are going to counselors that are able to listen. Um, Maybe they know some techniques, but rarely do they know these treatment protocols like you would receive for diabetic care or, um, you know, a set procedure in in surgery. So I feel like our field's been a little bit behind in that. Uh, In the early 2000s, actually, our surgeon general came out and said, look, there are evidence-based treatments in academia and main hospitals, and they are not being used in the community. That was 20 years ago, and we still see that today. So I think there's two big challenges in our system is that one, it's very siloed. You either treat kids or adults, you either treat this or you treat that. Uh, And most of those in and of itself, most providers are not using evidence-based treatments. So we're getting ineffective and inefficient care. I can't tell you how many times a week people say, hey, I need a referral for this. Who do you know? I don't have anywhere to refer them and I'm in the field, right? So you can imagine the frustration. 
So part of our innovation, Todd, is that we've been able in, in low and middle income countries to create a system of care that cuts across treatment. So I can train a provider in how to treat interpersonal violence, substance use, depression, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, parenting, internalizing, and externalizing in kids. It goes across the lifespan and it cuts across different levels of severity, which is another challenge, right? You either go see a coach here, or maybe you need to go see a social worker, or maybe you're bumped up to a psychologist or a psychiatrist instead of having one person that can kind of do it all. And that's something we've been able to do in low and middle income countries is show that it's a much nicer process for the client if they don't have to keep jumping around, if they don't have to find new providers for everything, it's it's shorter, it's quicker, and it's very effective. So it's an interesting concept. I think what we're fighting against is silos are very present in our society. Um, Jillian Tett wrote a great book about silo busting and how it's in so many places. And I know the business world has been working a lot on when does it make sense to cut down silos and when does it not? I, I question whether our mental and behavioral health and larger healthcare system, as you've talked so much about, is really ready for this. Are we ready to really disrupt what we've known in the past to perhaps create an innovation that could be much more efficient and effective? I think we have another way of looking at this, which is, do we have a choice? Right. In other words, I, I wrote extensively in my book about the need for what I call systems thinking. And what you're describing is an, is an example of that. You're doing it far more eloquently than I did. But, uh, you know, the idea of pulling together multidisciplinary teams in a way to solve the problem, but not necessarily have to having to have everybody on the team, you know, on the call or in the meeting, but rather instead saying, hey, I'm going to pull from the disciplines. Uh, so it's going to be a multidisciplinary approach not necessarily a multidisciplinary team that you're delivering to the patient experience. And I say so drawing from experts in science and, and like is helpful. And, you know, I, we, I also wrote in the book about my book about the, the issue with my mom uh, mentioned that she was involved in this plane, terrible plane crash uh, and suffered third degree burns that led to chronic uh, pain for 40 years. It also led to, uh, substance abuse problems because of the pain. So she learned very uh, astutely how to manage the pharmacies who were not on a single system. And so she knew how to go from one to another and, and get the meds she wanted. Um, but I, you know, tragically and uh, in my in my view anyway, horrifically had to uh, put her into an institution twice uh, against her will using judicial process. Um, and the, the sense of despair that I, I experienced, I can only imagine what she experienced, and, and the frustration at not knowing how to bring these resources. I'm a lawyer by training, and so I've got a pretty good academic background to prepare me for some of the legal issues associated with it. But even with that, it was really, really hard work. Um, so I think that the model is desperate for change. I'm happy that really, really smart people like you are tackling it. I think that uh, one of the things that I, I'm also, if you haven't noticed, a little bit of a, a fond spot for uh, deregulation where possible. And what I'm kind of hearing is that uh, the fact that uh, these developing nations are, in fact, less regulated than us gives you the freedom to not have to navigate things, this, the silos that are created either by what I call economic 
which are insurance companies, uh, economic regulation or legal regulation that create or reinforce those silos for a variety of reasons. So it seems to me like we don't have a choice. I, I would submit that while the systems may, be, may not be ready for it, I don't know that they have a choice because the need is so great, we're busting at the seams. Um, what corporate America did is they created these things called matrixed organizations. And it was a fantastic example of how people did not know how to talk to each other or work with each other and how economic incentives drove everybody's behavior. Um, and it was really the, the, the rare example of an extremely talented and persuasive leader who could navigate those, that model to a good conclusion. So I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that what we can do through your work is supplant the need for such extremely talented leadership to navigate all the different things, but rather rely more on technology and tools and AI, cognitive reasoning platforms uh, and the like in order to uh, deliver a higher quality care uh, to people. Because what you're talking about is actually not just, and I, I listened to the laundry list of things you're talking about, you know, everything from parenting to emotional health and, and substance abuse. It seems to me that what you're doing is you're, you're really dealing with how do I feel about stuff emotionally to how do I make decisions about stuff to how do I cope with stuff? All those things are part and parcel of what you're trying to do. So how does a tech, how can you really develop code or technology uh, to make it an easy way in to start grappling with those issues and then training the individual to say, hey, I know what I'm, what's, really, what's really tripping me up right at the moment. Very loaded question, Todd. <laughs> and I would say in addition to- You have the, to go somewhere else for softballs. Right. <laughs> in addition to the list that you said, I, the other intersection point for us, which I think would be of interest to you is that People don't realize clinical psychologists in, in the field of mental health, we deal with human behavior change, which has huge impacts in the healthcare. If we want to decrease costs for cardiovascular, weight loss, smoking, diabetes, we are your answer. We understand how to change behaviors uh, based on how we think, how we feel, things like that. And so I think that interplay between mental health and health is another silo that could really use some breaking breaking down. To your point about software, man, I think the options are endless. I meeting with tech companies, these guys are brilliant. They have created incredible systems in other areas, you know, transport and supply chain and we're working with a lot of veterans. They are incredible. The the stuff they have figured out because they've had to in really tricky situations has been instrumental in our work trying to say, how could we get this more automated, more seamless? The balance for us, Todd, I have to say, is not in the challenge of AI or software automation. It's about at what point do you still need that human element? And we don't want to take that away. I think the other dangerous direction we could go in is let's just all start talking to our computer screens or thinking that we can manage our mental health just on the phone or talking to someone who's a coach who doesn't really have any training. That to me is a dangerous line. Also, there is a point, as you're saying, where a person needs to say, 
where are my challenges? How can I better assess those? And when do I actually need to talk to someone and get some help to make sure that at least they're on the right track, or if not, maybe need to, to go in a, in a different direction. So you, you raise a really important point there, excuse me for interrupting you, but we can't let the possibility of bad prevent the probability of good. Love that. Yes. We and have a rule. A- you can, you, you can use, after you use it three times with attribution, you can claim it yourself. <laughs> I'll use it three times today then. I, you know, and that is such a critical aspect of thinking in systems, which I love of, of what you do. It's, it's critical. And I think a lot of us are silo trained. You know, I didn't start thinking this way until, as you said, I was working in multidisciplinary teams and seeing what other people bring to the table and, and how they might solve the problem that I know better than them, but they know how to solve it. So, and I think there's a real opportunity here. I think the, the COVID pandemic has created a light that may not be delightful, but it, it is opening up the opportunity for people to talk about it and be more aware and perhaps give us more flexibility in how we're thinking about our systems being run. Well, I think the other thing is that, you know, I've been hearing from, and these are anecdotes, of course, but uh, I've been hearing from a lot of people that especially young people are far more willing to be far more transparent with a computer screen than they are with a live human, right? Because I think they fear some sort of judgment will come across as a result of the, uh, the disclosure. So it's interesting because you raised the, the, the very salient point of how do we know when to transition away from the screen into a human interaction because the screen is going to only get us so far and actually could get us in the, you know, into a place we don't want to go. Yeah. And I think this is the beauty of working with humans is there's not, a, there's never going to be a one size fits all ever, you know? And I think that's another silo we're in. Like, let's come up with one solution. Well, for an older generation, there might be a need for a lot more face-to-face because that is more comfortable for a younger generation. They may actually be able to get everything done, even quite significant problems through a screen, because that is how they, how they're used to communicating. And then I think there's everything in between, right? You're introvert, you're an extrovert, you're comfortable with people, you're not, depends on your problem or your stage in life. There's also a lot of AI going on, right? Just in your match. So for example, we often joke with the veterans I work with, you know, if they were just matched at a behavioral tech company to someone like me, their first question thing would be like, no, I don't, I'm not going to talk to you. Like you've never been in Afghanistan. You have no idea. And a lot of people I talk to say, you know, this telehealth, I would do it. But when I get matched to a 25 year old social worker and I've got like, a mother in, you know, a facility and dealing with family problems, as you were talking about, it feels already like, how could you possibly get this? And I think that's a real opportunity for AIs to match us better just on that one connection point of, do I really think that you can help me and and serve me and understand where I'm coming from? So lots of opportunities with software and lots of Ability to build a system that can still be flexible for human beings, I think. So what you're telling me is is there are whole new lines of business for all the dating apps. (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) You might not want to get started on that. No, but I think you're spot on, which is, 
you know, what AI really allows you to do is to go through these different filters because they're picking up on words and behaviors and keystrokes and other things in your profile. And they're, it's, it's able to learn about you in real time and then direct you to the person that is on the other side of that profile. So, uh, and that, that can happen far more rapidly and far more consistently than, than the human reaction to do that. It was really interesting. I saw, I read a piece the, a few, few months ago, I guess now, maybe a few years ago. Um, about how people trust people who look like them more, right? So, uh, you know, if I'm, in fact, there's an ad on t- on uh, the radio I hear all the time about uh, this insurance guy who, you know, he's got all the same problems you do, so therefore he somehow understands your problems. It's like, yeah. really? Uh, I, I don't, first of all, I, I can only imagine somebody else having all my problems, but um <laughs> I want somebody who doesn't have those problems because they figured out how to, how to avoid them all. I want that person to help me. Yeah. And this is what I love about psychology and working with people. Everyone's a little bit different. Everyone falls on a continuum of, you know, what are their thoughts immediately go to? How similar or different do they like people to be? How open or closed are they to other points of view? And what's exciting is you have to be able to work along that continuum for every different person you meet. And and we change on that continuum all the time. We can go through periods in our life where we're a little bit more closed and others where we're a little bit more open. Some were very trustful, others were distrustful. So we're constantly moving also, which is why it's another reason our system has to change because it's really about putting people in boxes. And then that's where you are. You know, that's our whole diagnostic system in mental health. Like now I put you in the depressive disorder box, nothing else. And so now your chart comes to me and that's really all I see. It's not very holistic care. I'm, I'm going to betray yet again how wonky I am. Have you read Ken Wilber at all or studied Ken Wilber? I have not. And integ- integral psychology. So I, I'm going to really betray uh, Ken's work, but uh, here's... Here's the way I I frame it. All human beings are born with all attributes of all human beings. We just develop them at different rates of speed and in different volumes, which is what makes each of us different. Now, we, you know, a lot of the cutting edge leadership stuff is at the intersection of developmental psych and organizational dynamics. And so I got involved with uh, his work back through an organization in Dallas called Stegen and really smart people at the cutting edge. of both these fields. And what was interesting, you know, my first reaction was, oh, this is great. I'm going to learn how to, you know, where people are stuck, where they're not stuck. That'll help me communicate with them better. And I'll be able to get uh, more productivity. What I didn't realize is until years later, is, hey, wait a minute, I'm stuck too. <laughs> I've got my, I've got my own barriers right. to success. Um, but the thing that was really interesting about Wilbur's work was the fact that, you know, you can actually model and figure out where people are stuck. And what I'm hearing you say is along the same lines, and we can use AI and and other forms of technology to help sort through those problems. What you're really telling me, though, and, you know, we started off on the conversation with, oh, my gosh, the world is, you know, suffering with all of these extreme facts and figures and, and, uh, and just burdens and pressures and all sorts of, you know, for lack of a better term, agita, right, that is causing us to be exhausted at levels we didn't even understand before. And I don't know if you know you've done this for for me and hopefully for the audience here, but 
you're giving me unbelievable hope and inspiration. In other words, you're you're kind of highlighting how nascent this entire field is, how much unbridled opportunity there is to to change what we're uh, really dealing with in a positive way and to solve big, big, complex uh, personal, interpersonal, cultural issues across the globe because of this intersection that you're right in the center of. Don't, I mean, tell me if I shouldn't be so optimistic, but am, am I mistaken? Are you, are, you, are you not feeling that same sense of hope and optimism? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm so glad you got that out of it because people often are like, why, why, are you, why are you continually doing this? Why do you work so much on all this stuff? I think there's huge opportunity and people are so resilient and they can come together. And as a psychologist, I think one of the luckiest things we experience is we watch people change. And a lot of people don't, you know, they're frustrated in their marriage because their spouse won't change, or they're frustrated with their friends because they won't change, or frustrated with their company because they won't change. We see it day in and day out that people can change. And I think what you're describing is these assessments are wonderful and they serve a really valuable purpose as long as you also understand that if you reassess, you can change and you have the power to do that. And so I think a lot of it is empowerment and hope and saying, if we want to change, if you want to become more or less X or Y, there are strategies and techniques to do that. Now I'm going to fall back, Todd, on. I'm not sure those are readily available to people because our training system is not such that people aren't yet learning consistently science-backed processes. So unfortunately, a lot of time, for example, I work with people in violence and trauma quite a bit, and they will go through 10 or 20 years of seeing 15 different counselors and no one will ever talk about the trauma. That to me is highly problematic and unethical, really. And I must hear 10 stories every week about this. And and if you look at the evidence-based in psychology, when you have a traumatic incident, if you have symptoms past a certain period, you have to talk about it. You should. That's one of the most effective ways to deal with those symptoms. And so the sheer fact of just watching people go through a journey of really trying to get help and not get effective care, that's on us. That, that's, that's a challenge where I feel like there can be hope, but we also need to work on the side of making sure those tips and tricks and strategies are available to people in a very science-backed manner. Well, the important word I'm going to anchor on, because I'm still, I'm still hooked on this hope and inspiration thing. <laughs> Stay uh, there. Stay there. Yeah, is yet. <laughs> you know, you said we're not there yet. Uh, so that tells me that, you know, we're on a journey, um, that we're on the right path, uh, that we, we can get there, uh, but we're not there yet. So I could talk to you probably for another three or four hours and I'm pretty confident your time schedule won't allow me to do that. But, uh, I am so grateful for you, you, uh, you chat, you chatting with me today. Thank you so much, Laura. This has been fantastic. I have had so much fun. I've learned so much from you. Um, I'm sure everybody else did too, but Thank you so much for doing this. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Todd. This has been great. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.
OMG, your BFF's birthday is here and you don't know what to get her? No worries. 1-800-Flowers.com has you covered. 1-800-Flowers is the ultimate birthday gifting destination. For those who know, it's not about giving a gift. It's about giving the gift. Make every birthday brighter with exclusive offers and great values on gorgeous bouquets and arrangements. To order today, visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. Isn't it time to awaken a journey filled with wonder on a celebrity cruise? Drinks, Wi-Fi, and tips are always included. Plus, book by December 13th to get 50% off your second guest's cruise fare. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-Celebrity, or contact your travel advisor. Celebrity Cruises. Journey safe. Journey wonderful. Offer applies to select sailings. Additional restrictions apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.